Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you love for me, if you love for me, I love you, baby dear, and you know I always will. My heart will ride high and glorious, far above the throne. If you will take me along with you, take me along. If you love for me, take me along. If you love for me, take me along with I love your little beauty, but the Navy is my duty. My lips will sing. Believe it or not, I mean, this is a show about Eugene O'Neill. That's Jackie Gleason, so you think that's sort of a pretty big trip to make from Jackie Gleason to Eugene O'Neill, or the reverse. Although I'd like to point out that in Avengers Age of Ultron, Tony Stark says at one point, Robert Downey Jr., as Tony Stark says, it's been a long day, like a Eugene O'Neill long day. So we're never, nobody is ever that far from Eugene O'Neill. I mean, no matter where you go, he'll find you. Uh, And I think that might be one of the takeaways from the show. So uh, I should say that what we're going to do here is we're going to talk to you about maybe the Eugene O'Neill that you don't know that well, uh, assuming that you think you know anything about Eugene O'Neill. And so our we have great guests to do this. This uh, show is the brainchild of our terrific intern, Jared Todd. Uh, And so he's uh, gathered together some very interesting people towards the end of the show. You're going to hear Jeannie Hackett, actor, director, author, artist in charge of The Workroom and director of a landmark production of Long Day's Journey in Tonight with Alfred Molina and Jane Kaczmarek. Uh, but right now in studio, Robert Dowling, professor of English at uh, Central Connecticut State University and author of Eugene O'Neill, A Life in Four Acts and president of the Eugene O'Neill Society. Um, we'll have to find out what that entails, actually. But Howard Fisherman also is joining us uh, from the New York uh, NPR studios, which is funny because Howard Fishman grew up very near to where I'm sitting right now. Uh, but he's now a frequent contributor to The New Yorker. He's a performer and composer and wrote this uh, – both of these things – uh, Rob's book about O'Neill and Howard's essay about O'Neill are just were just terrific, and I realized how little I knew about O'Neill, and also what a wussy I am for like kind of avoiding a lot of O'Neill plays because they're going to be too hard on me. So uh, my life has already been changed by this show, and we haven't even started it yet. So Howard, I'm going to start with you. You were like the you know maybe the world's only twelve year old. <laughs> Eugene O'Neill freak, right? I think that's probably true, yeah. <laughs> Can you explain how that even could have happened? Well, it's uh, I didn't know that you were going to play that uh, clip from Take Me Along. Right. And, and when I heard it, I, I got a little uh, weepy. Yeah, a little, um, little verklempt. Yeah, a little verklempt because it's been so long since I've heard that song. But uh, when I was 12 years old, I was cast in a Hartford production of Take Me Along, which is a, the musical version of O'Neill's Ah Wilderness. And uh, I had been prompted to audition for this role by my seventh grade English teacher, whose name is Paul Grubbs. And he said, uh, you, you might really like Eugene O'Neill's plays. And in preparation for the audition, I recommend that you read Ah Wilderness. 
And I took a copy of the play out of the school library along with uh, – it included two other O'Neill plays, Beyond the Horizon and All God's Children Got Wings. And I thought Our Wilderness was sort of okay. I ended up getting the part. But the other two plays introduced me to the world of O'Neill in a way that uh, that gripped me and, and, and didn't really let go and hasn't. Right. And we're, we will talk more about that. You know, I mean, we should just – pause, Rob, and say one of the things that makes O'Neill interesting around here and probably the reason for your uh, you know, role as president for life of the Eugene O'Neill Society, <laughs> uh, your ruthless tyrannical rule of the Eugene O'Neill Society, <laughs> is that, I mean, you know, the O'Neill story is just shot through with, with, you know, I mean, Howard Fishman as a young guy in West Hartford is just the latest Connecticut person or Connecticut institution to be heavily involved with, uh, with Eugene O'Neill. So, Our Wilderness, yeah. the play on which that musical is based, is in turn based on the McGinley family. Yes. I grew up reading the sports writer and sports editor of the Hartford Times, uh, uh, Art McGinley, uh, who, is, who was a Confederate and drinking buddy. Uh, of, of O'Neill's, yeah. sure. When uh, I was you, you describe actually McGinley in your book talking about O'Neill's drinking, how he couldn't stop. Really, he didn't have a break. The break, no. the breaks were when he just got so sick he couldn't drink anymore. Yeah, he his his um, modus operandi when it came to alcohol was he would he would drink for several months and then he would taper off for about you know for a couple of weeks and uh, then write a play. You know, in two months or so, and uh, maybe three months or four months, sometimes longer, and uh, and then get right hit hit the bottle right back where he started. Um, that that lasted for a long time, but um, he's 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 one of the few people that really kicked it. I mm. mean, he he kicked the habit um, fully in 1927. Not fully, he did fall off the wagon every now and then. But um, his his doctor basically said, okay, it's either. It's either the bottle, it's either the bourbon, or it's your place. And he chose his place. So I just also want to say that one of the more bizarre things, this is so Connecticut, that, so here's Eugene O'Neill, the only American playwright ever to win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. The second American writer to win the Nobel Prize ever. Yeah. And so New London, which is really cl- as close to his home city, a place that he would think of as home yep. as, th- as there could ever be. New yep. London, it wasn't until 1972 that they l- named a street after him, <laughs> and they fought it tooth and nail. There, f- and there was a former mayor former who called mayor. him a stew bum and said, yep. what did Eugene O'Neill ever do besides write plays? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we're going to name our main street after Eugene yep. O'Neill. I mean, he's a stew bum. What did he ever do but write plays? And he said, uh, you know... O'Neill never did nothing for New London. Right. You know, he wasn't something, you know, serious like a like a drugstore owner or a banker or something. Right. Know? In fact, there was a bank that was objecting because they would have to change their stationery if it became Eugene O'Neill oh, Drive right. or yeah. whatever like yeah. that. By the way, Main Street in New London was not the Main Street of New London, which is also very New London, I think. Um, <laughs> but um, – so, uh, Howard, you know, I, I said to you before we went on the air that your essay in The New Yorker is so terrific, but it made me feel puny because the argument that you make about O'Neill is a very powerful argument that he, the, if, he if he is in fact America's greatest playwright, which I think a, a lot of consensus would say, it, it's because he refuses to look away from the abyss, that he's so insistent about making us and himself and his characters deal with what it means to be alive. But I'd love for you to elaborate on that a little bit. Well, I think that's true. He, he, yeah, he refuses 
to allow you to look away from the from the uh, the issues that make us human uh, and the things that matter the most to us. Uh, and when you scrape away those superficial layers and uh, dig into that um, that kind of uh, uncomfortable ugliness that's underneath, uh, it is something that uh, we're not confronted with in an everyday way. And it's one of the things that I think Rob will probably agree with me, make his play so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. He, on some level, he makes that ugliness, once it's revealed, beautiful, um, because it's that suffering that uh, that brings enlightenment. Um, a kind of contradictory point to that, though, is that he really did kind of believe in dreaming and maintaining these kind of life-sustaining dreams, uh, the hopeless hopes, as he called them. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's, it's a kind of contradictory point of view because he, he wants to get at the truth, but, abs- uh, but actually the ravages of the truth sometimes aren't, um, sometimes people, people just can't um, endure them. Um, anyway. Well, so, and Howard, one point that you make, and I guess this is like one of the huge, vast part of the huge, vast landscape of things about Eugene O'Neill that I had never grasped before, is that, um, you know, the plays which kind of represent, I think, what we think of as the O'Neill canon, a lot of them were written later, like after he had won the Nobel Prize, and that you feel like, the, the, the well, first of all, the things that had attracted the international attention it takes to win a Nobel Prize, uh, those are plays written earlier in his career, and, and a lot of them are like barely known by anybody. Uh, I don't know if you want to particularly concentrate uh, on one of them. I, I actually think that your description of the play that involves the interracial couple and the masks is pretty fascinating. Yeah, that's all God's children got wings. But uh, yeah, O'Neill made a reputation as a wildly experimental playwright. And th- these plays are bristling uh, with energy and ideas and uh, um, they, as you say, they are mostly forgotten today. The, the plays that uh, O'Neill, O'Neill's reputation stands on today, Long Day's Journey and Tonight, The Iceman Cometh, The Moon for the Misbegotten, those plays were all written after he had won the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Prize was uh, awarded for those earlier plays that we don't know about today. And, and I think most of the – well, the reason we don't know about them today is because, A, they're not performed. Right. Uh, but, B, they're also not read And I think that that is a failing of our culture these days, that we have stopped the practice of reading plays. It's just not something that people do anymore. And in O'Neill's day, uh, when his play Strange Interlude was first published in 1928, I think, Rubble. Yeah, that's right. For which, which, um, well, he made an enormous amount of money, but he was actually put on the short list for the Nobel during uh, right after Strange Interlude. Actually, what, why don't we play uh, A1 here, Pants? We can hear a little bit of Strange Interlude. This is actually a television uh, adaptation featuring Glenda Jackson and Edward Petherbridge. Uh, and we'll just hear a little bit of it. My son, Gordon, Charlie. He flew away to another life. So we're all alone again. Just as we used to be. Just as we used to be. Before Gordon came. My having a son was a failure, wasn't it? He couldn't bring me happiness. Sons are always their fathers. 
They pass through the mother to become their fathers again. The sons of the father have always been failures. Failing, they died for us. They flew away to other lives. They could not stay with us. They could not bring us happiness. You know, there's you listen to Glenda Jackson there, Howard, and she's crooning almost like a bassoon. And one of the things that you write about is the musicality of these plays that directors and actors ultimately see the words as a kind of music that almost has to be sung instead of spoken. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think O'Neill was really, uh, really paid attention to that in, in draft after draft of really getting the dialogue exactly uh, to that sort of point where it almost becomes like music and, and, and incredibly rhythmic. Uh, the uh, Iceman Cometh in particular is really, you know, his most symphonic play. I mean, Long Day's Journey and Tonight is symphonic too. But just in the sense that he has this one main theme of pipe dreams and he uses all these different variations on the theme. And people, you know, complained about him. Critics complained about him being so repetitious and, oh, my God, if I hear the word pipe dream again, I'm going to, you know, <laughs> jump out of my seat. Um, but that was his whole point was to make the entire experience a kind of orchestral, um, symphonic uh, moment in people's lives. You know, I also want to just go back to the thing that Howard was saying before. And, and yeah. I know each of you have things to, to say about this. But, I mean, Howard, one of the things that you, t- you talk about, yes, true – I grew up reading plays. I, I, I remember I just read all of Beckett's plays, I think, and just one after the other and then read them all over again. Uh, but people don't really do that anymore. At least one of O'Neill's plays was a bestseller. Uh, you know, it was on the bestseller list, just the, the script of the play, basically. Um, but that, that a lot of them, like some of them, even I think, Howard, you mentioned one of them that was never restaged in any significant way after the first production of it. Yeah, I think I was writing about Dynamo, Dynamo which is yeah. not not uh, yeah, which is a pretty uh, challenging play, uh, both to read and to think about staging because um, it's so bizarre. But yeah, you're <laughs> you're correct. Uh, Strange Interlude is the what the point I was making is that Strange Interlude was the uh, the play that did make the bestseller list, and uh, I I don't think that we uh, are at a moment now where, I mean, I don't, uh, well, c- could a play make a bestseller list today? I No, because um, the New York Times stopped reviewing plays as books in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And I think, I, I don't know why. I'd like to find out why. But, um, but, you know, I think around that time, plays stopped being considered literature, stopped being taught in the high schools, stopped being taught in education programs. Um, that that really has to change, right? So Howard makes the point, point Rob, that yeah. yes, if people don't read the plays and then the plays also aren't revived, aren't staged, right. then O'Neill's plays, some of his plays, just disappear from sight, sure. unless Howard and his friends do their own reading of them, which was the case with Dynamo. But Dynamo, but yeah. also there's, you know. Uh, I mean, O'Neill himself, I'm blocking the name of the play, but there's one play where he eliminated two of the three existing typescripts and then accidentally sent the third one with all of his papers over to Yale. (laughs) More stately mansions. More stately mansions. It's the longest play he ever wrote. And he said he didn't want anyone to stage it. Yeah. Well, yeah. He he said unfinished destroy in the, the, um, uh, you know, in the case of my death. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of like like Kafka, but a little bit more it's, selectively. But it's the sequel of A Touch of the Poet, which yeah. is, frankly, is my favorite O'Neill play, just on a personal level. But um, 
it, it is actually a magnificent play. Mm-hmm. It's just very, very long. Um, a touch, and it's the sequel to a Touch of the Poet. The two of them combined are about 596 pages, just to give you an idea. But, I mean, it is, it is great reading. And the other thing about um, O'Neill being readable is he was really a frustrated novelist. Because what novelists can do is get into the minds of their characters. And so the, the reader can get into the minds of their characters. But once realism um, on the theater took over, and to be a modern playwright in the early 20th century, you had to be a realist like Gibson or Chekhov, uh, O'Neill was, lo- he was, he was deprived of the soliloquy, which was the one thing that, um, that uh, playwrights had to show the real inner thoughts of, 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 the mi- you know, of their characters' minds. And that was really, uh, to my mind, the central problem for which he was trying to find a solution. Um, and he also, you know, does uh, aside, thought asides, like he does in Strange Interlude and Dynamo, and he, uh, you know, uses masks and expressionism and so forth. Um, finally, I, I know it sounds um, kind of glib, but he found it in um, the people, his characters being drunk, that mm. realistically in Long Day's Journey and Tonight and Moon for the Misbegotten and The Iceman Cometh, um, that drunkenness actually allows the characters to um, to perform soliloquies in a kind of realistic in a realistic way, and uh, more stately mansions is is um, I mean it's it's more experimental. We don't have to get too far into it, <laughs> but it really is like reading a novel. If you read those two plays, a Touch of the Poet and More Stately Mansions together, um, it really reads like a novel. So you know, both of you, uh, but I'll come over to you, Howard, about with this. Uh, both of you, I think, sort of talk about O'Neill as this. Thing that I would be in the in the category of people who I, I wouldn't say I resist going to see an O'Neill play, and certainly you know mm-hmm. I mean when Michael Wilson did Moon for the Misbegotten and stuff like that, I went and saw it. And but I, I'm also maybe not a person who's necessarily going to seek out, who's going to like you know get on StubHub or something and try to get tickets to the <laughs> next you know production of The Iceman yeah. Cometh or something. But Howard, one of the things that your essay suggests is that when people do push past that first line of resistance. And, and that you maybe as a proselytizer or a drug pusher of O'Neill, you know, have, tr- have done that with people. I mean, what happens when you try to convert somebody to O'Neill? What, what's the process like? What do you say to somebody to get them to read or see an O'Neill play? Well, I'm not sure that Eugene O'Neill is quite so hip right now. Or, or, uh, and it's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm both surprised and delighted that we're doing a radio program about him. And <laughs> thanks to Jared Todd for suggesting it. Um, what I, yeah, what I guess I encounter is kind of an eye roll when it comes to, uh, uh, um, proselytizing about O'Neill. But I do think that when people are exposed to his work, either by reading it or seeing a very good production, they, they are exposed to an uplift of our spirit Mm -hmm. that doesn't occur in, in a lot of our literature and a lot of our media today and in a lot of our everyday lives. He really catches you by the throat and doesn't let go. And I mean, you know, one of his points is um, with tragedy. And, and, you know, as you started with your teaser, I think it's sort of, oh, you know, he's so depressing. Mm -hmm. Well, his point is, you know, tragedy is hard. Mm -hmm. It's it's difficult. Um, But it's only through that kind of difficulty that you're going to learn something about yourself. Whereas comedy, you just kind of walk in, you're entertained for a couple hours, then you walk out and you get on with your life. Um, with a tragedy, you really have to work through it and work through it after you've left the theater. 
Right. I mean, I sort of I, I spent some time today thinking about all this and realizing that, yes, if you're going to look at life directly, you know, there's sort of two possible responses. One of them is to be the ecstatic, is to be like Whitman, you know, and just mm. be just elated kind of about everything. <laughs> you know, and the other response is to be O'Neill, right, which is you're going to look at this stuff and you're going to say, wow, this is hard and scary and dangerous and painful and we hurt each other and we get hurt by the others. Mm-hmm. And, and, and yet that's like what there is, right? But that's, I think there yeah. is. Yeah, I guess I would say there is an ecstatic feeling to that. Uh, when we look at what's really going on in life and when we don't turn away from it, uh, it, it gives us a sense of ecstasy that comes from that catharsis that O'Neill was, was aiming at and gets at at so many of his plays, uh, something that connects us to ourselves and to each other in a way that is very vital and, and missing from a lot of our culture today. Um, with that in mind, let's uh, hear a little uh, from Beyond the Horizon. This is as performed at the uh, Irish Rep. I love those people. Uh, one, yeah, yeah. The Irish Rep. Is um, yeah. They actually did one of my father's two Broadway plays. Uh-huh. So um, uh, this one, uh, O'Neill, his first Pulitzer Prize. You hear Andrew Mayo uh, talking about um, fighting with his father. Uh, well, anyway, we'll let O'Neill's words do the work here. I don't love Ruth. I never loved her. The thought never entered my mind. Oh, now you're spouting lie on lie. Oh, I suppose it would be difficult for you to explain anyone wanting to leave this blessed farm except for some outside reason like that. I've been sick of farm life for a long time. And if I never said anything about it, it was to save your feelings. Baby, stop. You're only making things worse. I don't care. I've done my share of work around here, and I've earned my right to quit when I want to. But I am sick of the business. I, 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 I hate the farm and every inch of ground in it. I'm sick of, of digging in the dirt and sweating in the sun like a slave without a word of thanks for it. All right. Well, let yeah. me throw yeah. in something about, yes. uh, yeah, so you were saying about the, the O'Neill Society. One mm-hmm. thing we do every few years is give out um, a Eugene O'Neill medallion, mm-hmm. which is um, our highest honor to the people who have done the most to further O'Neill's um, work and um, Karen O'Reilly and Charlotte Moore mm-hmm. of the Irish Repertory Theater are going to be two recipients this year in uh, in Boston because they put on tough plays like Beyond the Horizon. Um, and um, I mean, they did The Harry Ape, they've done The Emperor Jones, they've done, um, you know, many different uh, O'Neill plays. And then, you know, and um, anyway, to get back to Beyond the Horizon, that is a great play for high school teachers to teach their students. Um, that is, and and I think Howard brings that up in his essay. Am I right about that, Howard? Yeah, I I, I did talk about Beyond the Horizon yeah. briefly. Yeah, because it's just you know it just has these great um, char- the the kind of gloomy poet guy, and then the you know sort of s- steadfast salt of the earth farmer guy, and uh, and there's a woman who's sort of torn between them, Ruth Atkins. And um, and and you know what O'Neill calls his ironic fate. Uh, they each choose the wrong path ultimately by the end of the uh, by the end of the play. But those kinds of decisions and those kinds of that kind of heartbreak and um, and being pushed and pulled by different um, forces beyond your control. I think teenagers really really would. Um, would get a lot out of that. All right. Really we get, we, we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to be back with more of Howard Fishman, more of uh, Rob Dowling, after the proverbial this. Watched the whole world go up in flames. And when it was all over, I said to myself, is that all there is to a fire? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? 
All right, we're back. We're talking about Eugene O'Neill, but maybe, hopefully, in a way that you hadn't thought about before. Howard Fishman is with us, frequent contributor to The New Yorker, where he wrote a terrific essay uh, about O'Neill, also a performer and composer. Uh, and uh, Robert Dowling is professor of English at Central Connecticut State University. And his very readable uh, literary biography of O'Neill, uh, Eugene O'Neill, A Life in Four Acts, is much too, is very much recommended. Uh, so one of the, and I have to once again thank Jared Todd, our intern, uh, who proposed this show. And then Betsy Kaplan has been kind of his dramaturge or something, uh, helping him uh, get this uh, police thing together. We've got uh, Jonathan McPants, who's running the board today because Kion Wolf is sick and on and on and on. But, you know, so Howard, one of the things that Jared started talking about to us uh, and that we started talking about in our meetings is the way O'Neill seems very right for the present moment. There, uh, there. Maybe he's right for every present moment, and maybe if uh, we were doing this same show in, you know, 1962, we'd be saying the same thing. But I thought a place to start might be uh, O'Neill. Uh, is uh, very interested in the uh, words of Jesus in Mark eight thirty six. Uh, you know, what for what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his soul? So, Howard, maybe we can start there, and maybe we can talk about what you think O'Neill is thinking about as he reflects on those words. Yeah, well, he gave a very uh, famous quote during a press conference for the Iceman Cometh where he talks about America and how uh, America, instead of being the greatest success in the world, is its greatest failure because we had so much to, to begin with and we, we kind of blew it, um, putting all of our value on materialism and consumerism and the external rather than the internal. And someday, he said, we're really going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're getting it now. Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, we have somebody leading our country who's basically Marco Millions in the flesh, uh, which is a play of his that nobody knows, but uh, is about uh, somebody who gains the whole world but loses his soul. His soul. Right. Right. And, and that quote, that, that quote from, from the Bible is part of Jesus's take up your cross speech. And, and I'm thinking that, you know, what O'Neill thinks is uh, – Taking up your cross, pick up your cross, uh, uh, Jesus says, is that act of really looking into the abyss at facing life the way it is. And since um, since now Howard has invoked the great pumpkin, uh, I mean, <laughs> it, it, you know, that's, it, Rob, yeah, it does seem that, as though we have a president who has spent his life avoiding that process. He, he seems like one of the least likely person to reflect on what it means to be alive. That's that's precisely right. And How, Howard's right to bring up uh, Marco Polo and Marco Millions as um, probably the closest um, kind of avatar of Trump that uh, we could find in O'Neill. Um, Con Melody, maybe, but we can get to him later. But um, the thing about Marco Polo is that he does actually transform um, over the course of the play. And he becomes a kind of Trumpian figure by the end and completely, you know, wrapped up in materialism and, and uh, kind of the final words of the player, millions, millions, millions that he's made from, um, from China. And, um, and also when he was in China, I've actually been to the city that he was the mayor of, Yangzhou, and, and, uh, and that's talked about in the play as well. And he sort of uh, prevents immigrants from coming into the city and he's, he's the mayor of the city, prevents immigrants. He get, you know, sort of redirects money upwards uh, to the top 1%. I mean, it's really, it's really right out of, um, of a um, paper today. 
You know, uh, Howard, um, in reading Rob's book, there's sort of a quote at the beginning where Cornell West uh, compares O'Neill uh, to uh, to Charlie Parker and to Martin Luther King, mm. <laughs> to the Wachowski brothers who made The Matrix, which I didn't really see that one coming. But, you know, I don't— The humanity of black people. The humanity of black people. Yeah. yeah, and Howard, that's like—once uh, again, I think about uh, O'Neill in this very sort of cliched and shallow way as this sort of, you know, ultimate Irish-American writer writing about the Irish. American condition, which he absolutely is. But I, I guess I like missed that whole part of this. And maybe uh, Howard, both you and Rob can talk a little bit about this. But he he is uh, um, someone who has important things to say about race, as I think he says, it's a, a constitutive element of American life, not an additive to American life. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, I don't know why nobody is staging All God's Chilling Gut Wings these days. It is a frightening and powerful play about race. And uh, Can I, I say they did do a production? I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked to admit that um, or, you know, embarrassed to admit that I didn't see it. They did do a production in Brooklyn in which um, – Anybody of color had to sit on one side of the stage and anybody who was Caucasian had to sit on the other. Mm-hmm. And uh, O'Neill sort of expressionistically stages it that way where so the blacks are on one side of the street and the whites are on the other. Mm. And um, and God, I wish I had seen that. So, uh, Howard, this is one of the plays that captures your young imagination. So explain what it is. Explain the, the notion of it. Well, I, it just has so much fire and craziness and confusion and frailty and vulnerability to it. Uh, uh, it it's, it's, like I said, it's one of those first plays that I read as a very young man that just excited my imagination. And, uh, yeah, it gets at, at, at some very fundamental um, uh, problems and confusions about race in this country that I think st- – today still hold. Yeah. It's about, I mean, he doesn't shy away from virtually any topic in the American social matrix and mixed race uh, marriage. Um, You know, he didn't shy away from that either. Plays about mixed race marriage and just sort of how the social constructs constructs of a race um, impact these, this couple psychologically and just, um, and just she goes pretty much insane and he, who's very ambitious and wants to be a lawyer, um, finally just he can't pa- pass his bar exam even though he knows all the answers and he just kind of crumbles and they decide to go back to being child- children back to a time – I mean this is as far as we know from the ending – but um, back to a time when they were children and hadn't been sort of toxified by um, the racial animus of America at the time once, once they grew up, of course – um, the racism kicked in and uh, they started to realize. You know, Howard, I'm kind of wondering, like I remember being, I grew up in West Hartford too, and I remember being maybe a little bit older than 12 or 13 or however old you were. I remember seeing a production of Pinter's Homecoming and becoming yeah. getting sick to my stomach. I actually like <laughs> had to run to the bathroom and be sick because I just couldn't believe people could be so horrible. I'm kind of so wondering. So he succeeded. Yeah, he succeeded. Pinter got what he wanted out of me. But I'm just wondering, <laughs> Howard, like, you know, somebody your age at that time what how was this speaking to you uh, what do, can you can you articulate why something as complex and difficult and maybe pretty far outside the range of your existing experience totally at that outside moment. the range yeah, of my so experience, yeah so what so what happened there well i think that it, it's it, it's appropriate to talk about O'Neill in the in this in terms of polit- politics because he was very invested in 
American politics and American culture and what's gone wrong with it. I think it's also appropriate to talk to him in terms of race and society because he was very invested in those things as well. But I think more than those things, he was most interested in the human spirit and what makes us human and what our existence is about. And that the that gets at the ecstasy that you were talking about before, that sense of being alive and being alive to the moment and being uh, having a, a glimpse of what we what not only what we really are but what we could be, and it's that kind of power and imagination and excitement that that uh, was something new to me as a twelve or thirteen year old in West Hartford, Connecticut. And he he does not believe that that can be achieved without being all inclusive. That everybody needs to be involved. So he writes about you know prostitutes. He writes about um, semen. He writes about um, tenant farmers. He writes about you know the black man in a white in a white America, and um, and 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 sort of in a Whitmanic way. You brought up Whitman. You know, I mean, he really brings it all mm-hmm. together in ways that these kind of characters on the stage, particularly, were uh, primarily just stereotyped, caricatured in uh, minstrel sh- shows and so forth um, beforehand. And we should say that before for, him, for some of the reasons that you're articulating, Rob, he's regarded as dangerous. The FBI investigates oh, yeah. him. Yes. He's hanging around with yes. uh, F- Jack Reed and FBI, Louise Bryant. Yep. And the I FBI, saw that movie. Emma Goldman. The, F- yeah. the FBI. <laughs> well, the FBI memo that came out after the Harry Ape was uh, during the Harry Ape's uh, first run um, was classified classification 61, which is treason. Mm. And they believed that he was that he was basically sending out mas- messages to the radical uh, elements. And this is right after. I mean, this is one year after the official Red Scare was had ended. We're going to have to take a break pretty soon here. I just want to say that there's so much stuff that we don't have time to cover. I mean, Ingrid Bergman was 26 years old. Nobody really knew who she was. She was starring in Anna Christie. She goes and she meets him, and he stares a bores a hole in her with his eyes. I mean, his daughter, Una, winds up- His marrying, eyes are pretty amazing. Yeah, Una winds up marrying Charlie Chaplin, who's she's like 18 or 19, and he's like 54 or something. Just turned 18. Yeah, just turned 18. Okay. Um, there's his death and the fact that they, they did an autopsy on, the, on his brain tissue later and found that- Whatever his tremor problem was, it probably wasn't from his drinking. There's so many stories about this. I, I pointed out. I actually told Rob something he didn't know, which is really hard to do with O'Neill, which is that there's this one uh, neurologist named Harry Kozel, who's Jonathan Kozel's father, who died at the age of 102, and he had treated Eugene O'Neill, Patty Hearst, and the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo. That's quite a trifecta there. So, uh, Howard Fishman, I want you to have the last word here. Oh. So, you you are the. I mean, we're gonna. It's not the last word of the show because we're gonna, but we're gonna switch over to Jeannie Hackett in just a second here. I want you to just. You know, if you were trying to get somebody who was reluctant to see what you see in O'Neill, what's the best gateway drug? What play would you have them either watch or read or I don't know, like what's what's the way, the best on-ramp? I would just get a collection of his plays and start reading. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say to that person that uh, Eugene O'Neill is as radical and as untamed and as as destabilizing to the status quo as he was when he wrote those plays. And it remains vital reading and vital uh, theater. Here, here. Yeah, that's great. All right. So uh, read Howard's essay in The New Yorker. uh, And then uh, also get a hold of Eugene O'Neill, A Life in Four Acts by uh, Robert M. Dowling. This is just uh, both of these things uh, will transform your thinking uh, about O'Neill. All right. We're going to take a break. Uh, We uh, certainly wanted to hear uh, from someone who uh, had some onstage experience 
both uh, directing and acting. Uh, so Jeannie Hackett is going to join us after this. Everybody talk about a heaven ain't going to heaven. Heaven, I'm going to walk all over God's heaven. I got a robe, you got a robe, all the God's children got all right, so we've been having this fascinating conversation about uh, Eugene O'Neill. Yeah, all of it, uh, the product of the imagination of our terrific intern, Jared Todd. People might say, well, how do I get to meet Jared Todd, this wunderkind of public radio? Well, I can't guarantee that he's going to be at the Colin McEnroe Show 10th anniversary party, but he might be at Black Eyed Sally's on Wednesday of next week, November 13th, starting around 530. You could be, too. Uh, you buy your tickets. Uh, at, well, you can go to WNPR.org, and you'll see a little place. It's very visible and you get tickets now and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you get a ticket and we buy you a drink. We give you some food. You should practice singing uh, In My Life by the Beatles uh, because you're going to be singing that as a group uh, as well as something else. But we're still fighting about what the something else is. All right. So it's time uh, to talk more uh, about Eugene O'Neill. And we want to do that with uh, Jeannie Hackett, who I have to put up on the board here because I didn't do that during the break because I'm not smart. There we go. Uh, actor, director, author, artist uh, in charge at The Workroom and uh, director of a, a landmark production uh, of Long Day's Journey Into Night that starred Alfred Molina and uh, and Jane Kaczmarek. Uh, so uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. I know you've been listening to the show so far. I have. And thanks so much for having me, Colin. This has been fascinating. We should also say that you've played uh, Belle in in our wilderness uh, at the roundabout as well. Uh, so you've you've done kind of from both sides uh, of the stage now. So uh, I guess maybe talk about just even the decision to stage and direct something like Long Day's Journey into Night. It's been done a lot of times by a lot of very uh, famous people. What was it that drew you to the material? Material. What did you want to explore there? Well, it, you know. What always draws me to something is the people who are involved. And Jane Kaczmarek and Alfred Molina and I, who have been friends for a long time, wanted to do something. And we sat down with a huge pile of scripts. And finally, Fred said, why are we dancing around this? Let's go to the big one. (laughs) And pulled it out. And it was scary for me because I had never really been, uh, O'Neill was not one of my playwrights. I think as an actress, Coming up, uh, you know, as an actress, a young actress coming up, we gravitate towards Williams and Chekhov because there's lots of roles for younger women. But in O'Neill, you don't find quite that same connection. And I really didn't have a strong connection other than, you know, having seen the plays and, uh, you know, knowing something about him. I didn't know what I was going to do with his play. And it, and I didn't know um, what it wanted me to do with it. You, and luckily, I had a year before I started, so I had a <laughs> lot of time to read and think and discuss. And I was just very just struck by what uh, Robert Dowling and Howard were talking about now, because it so kind of coincides with my own, my own um, thinking about what makes audiences why audiences want to see O'Neill when there's a good production. I think when people don't want to see these plays, it's because they've seen a bad production. 
Right. I think that's, uh, I, I, I probably read it in Rob's book, either that or in Howard's essay. But the, no, it's Howard's essay where somebody says, you know, if you don't like a Eugene O'Neill play, it's probably our fault as actors, as directors, you know. The, exactly. The, and, and, and so I, I have so many questions to ask you about this. Maybe before we do that, just to remind people a little bit of the music of, uh, of Long Day's Journey uh, in tonight, the verbal uh, music of it, um, we'll play. Unfortunately, we don't have a clip from, from uh, our guests' uh, production. But we can we do have the 1987 movie adaptation uh, that was directed by Jonathan Miller. I think we're going to hear a bit of Bethel Leslie as um, Mary Tyrone. How dare your father allow it? What right is he? You're my baby. Let him tend to Janie. Oh, I know why he wants to send you to a sanatorium to take you from me. He's always tried to do that with every one of my babies. He's been jealous of every one of them. He always found ways to make me leave, and that was the Wilma, reason for you. Will you stop death. talking crazy? Will you stop trying to blame him? Why are you so against my going away now? I've been away a lot. I've never noticed it broke your heart. I'm afraid you're not very sensitive after all. You might have guessed, dear, that once I knew you knew about me, I had to be glad whenever you were where you couldn't see me. Don't. All this talk about loving me, you won't even listen when I, I try to tell you how sick I really... I know it's oh, only Artie's ignorant eyes. <laughs> you are so like your father, dear. You like making a big scene about nothing at all so you can get dramatic and tragic. If I gave you the slightest encouragement, you'd tell me next you were going to die. Well, people do die of it. Your own father died. Why do you mention him? There's no comparison at all with you. He had consumption. <laughs> oh, I hate you when you're gloomy. I forbid you to remind me of my father's death. Do you hear me? I hear you. She got it. God is pretty hard to take a time having a dope vein for a mother. So Jeannie Hackett. Uh, you know, there's this. Uh, I was watching this documentary uh, about Mike Nichols, and he said this thing that's kind of haunted me. And I keep bringing it up. Uh, he's talking about actually jokes in that situation. He says there's two reasons to tell a joke. One is because it's funny, and the other because it's you. By you, meaning everybody. Um, uh-huh. And and that's sort of there's sort of maybe two reasons to stage a tragedy too. One of them is because uh, it's powerful. It's just a, a powerful play. But the other is because it's everybody. And so yeah. you know, I mean, this is O'Neill's deeply biographical personal play. If you read Rob's book, you know like how incredibly close to the bone he's coming about his own family and what went on in Monte Cristo Cottage in New London. But there's some way in which it has to be everybody, too. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, anybody who's come from a dysfunctional family, who wants to go in the theater and see that all over again? <laughs> and I mean, I think that's why a lot of people think, oh, it's so depressing. Why do I but but what O'Neill does is he's a celebrant of loss, and you know we have occasions where we where we celebrate loss, where we mourn um, after someone dies, the funeral, uh, the the uh, memorial service. What happens in this play is people don't get to mo- people have not gotten to mourn the things that they have lost. And during the course of this play, because Mary's addiction starts taking over, people start talking to each other for the first time. And the masks, I loved what I think was Howard was saying about the mask of alcoholism. The, the masks come off. And, and Jamie's mask of cynicism becomes vulnerability and 
James Tyrone's mask of celebrity becomes the the inner side of a poor man trying to make good and actually um, killing his inner artist. So through mourning, through real mourning, we can connect with each other just the way we do when in life. Right. You know, um, I have so many things ways I want to follow mm-hmm. up with that. But, I mean, obviously, another thing that goes on in the play is that people have tried to dull the pain in other ways. People have yes. tried to. So they've used morphine. They've used alcohol. They've used sex. There's a way in which, and I think this is what you're saying here, Jeannie Hackett, is that when that stuff, when that whole system, <laughs> that old deeply Irish yes. but also deeply human system of distraction yes. and pain numbing breaks down, something else has to happen. That's right. That's right. And one of the things I wanted so much for this production, there's so many scenes that are arguments. And, and if people are fighting against other people all the time, there's no point to this play. But if they're fighting for something that they want from the other person, fighting with a positive energy of please don't drink, of, 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 with love, fighting for someone with love, then you see a whole different kinds of catharsis happen. Um, and and I feel like I feel like Eugene O'Neill triumphs over his own horrible childhood with this play. Mm. He, he, somehow. What he experienced, he converts it into triumph. And then we're back to what Howard and Rob were both saying about that's how you get to the ecstasy. You get to the ecstasy by plowing through all that stuff. I, I, I think you may have just kind of answered a question I was going to ask you, but I'll ask it anyway. So you began by telling us that you and Jane Kashmarek, who's just such a terrific uh, actor, yes. and I've, I've been crazy about her. I saw her actually as a Yale Drama School student in David Mamet's yes. Sexual Perversity in Chicago, and she's uh, just so terrific. So you, you and Alfred Molina and Jane Kashmarek are plowing through scripts. What are we going to do? Melina says, what about the big one? Why are we avoiding the big one? Why don't we just do this? Can, can you say anything about what happened among the three of you when you say there was about a year before it really happened, but as the three of you are grappling with this material, were those kinds of revelations happening? Were you kind of discovering human things among the three yeah. of you? Absolutely. I mean, and, and even when the, the kids came in, too, it was a constant discussion about what we recognized in these characters from our own lives. And I think when the actor makes that connect, then the audience connects too. The audience recognizes herself if the actor has done a good job of doing that. Mm. And, and, and yes, I mean, it's scary to take on a play of this magnitude because you're going to have to look at the abyss, look into the abyss every night. Right. And yet, you know, just like Chekhov, just like the cherry orchard, which, you know, starts in the nursery and sort of ends in the graveyard of the house. This play is the same thing. It's, it's, it compresses time in a way that says, there was pain, but there was love, but there was 
meaning. Suffering on its own, suffering on its own, we can't tolerate. If, if we're suffering for some kind of meaning, though, if there's meaning behind the suffering, it's the compression of what O'Neill did that allows us to experience joy as we watch the play. Um, and, and I was really happy that that's, we had a lot of talkbacks. I mean, and audience members were, who had never seen this before, and especially in L.A., these plays are just not staged. And a whole generation of people came to see this play that who had never seen an O'Neill play, which to me is, you know, I, I came up at NYU in New York. And, I mean, this, is, this was shocking to me. Yeah. Oh well, and and first of all, thank you for for being the person uh, or a part of a group of people willing to do a play like that. And uh, one of the things that is clear, as you say, as Howard says, as Rob says, some of these plays like they really don't get staged. I mean, Long Day's right. Journey and Tonight, at least that does get staged. But sometimes, yes, yeah. So yeah. we unfortunately we have to end there. We're out of time, and just too bad because I had a whole bunch of other questions I wanted to ask you. But that's maybe a good sign too. So. Uh, so Jeannie Hackett, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, she directed Long Day's Journey and Tonight at the Geffen Playhouse in L.A. in 2017. Uh, and also with us today, Howard Fishman uh, writes for The New Yorker, a terrific article uh, about his passion, his literally lifelong passion for Eugene O'Neill. And uh, Rob Dowling, professor of English at Central Connecticut State University. Uh, he's the author of Eugene O'Neill, A Life in Four Acts. He's president of the Eugene O'Neill Society uh, and uh, also Special thanks to Jared Todd, our intern, for getting us to do this.